0: Please help me welcome Adam T from Los Angeles. Adam Alcoholic, You guys can hear me. Great, it's about time. Want to uh, thank the group for inviting me to come talk. Thank you, Pedge. Um, happy birthday to Ali. Welcome to all the out-of-towners. Welcome to the people that are brand new. Uh, you know, it's an honor and a privilege to participate in AA. It's a responsibility to give back what was so freely given to me. Welcome to anyone that's trying Alcoholics Anonymous again. If you don't want to be here, if you don't think AA will work for you, I didn't get to Alcoholics Anonymous because I had a bad weekend. You know, I mean, I had a couple of bad decades. And for me, like a lot of us, eventually this becomes a matter of life and death. Thank you, Dean, for your talk. Um, every meeting has their perpetual newcomer. You know, we see that lost soul recycling through the rooms and I, you know, I stood up in, in, I live on the West side. I stood up in this area for 17 years as a newcomer. Uh, I had so many chips and key tags. It's ridiculous. I could have played poker with them. I remember one secretary saying, give them back. And, you know, I did that walk of shame over and over again. And looking back at that experience now, I thank God for the unconditional love of the old timers. A lot of the old timers that aren't with us anymore. A lot of them that died sober that, you know, said things to me like, you know what, don't even bother taking chips, just sit in the back, shut up, you know, but in a loving way, right, but they made it really clear to me, and if you're new, I hope you hear this, they made it really clear to me that if and when I was ready, because they could see it by my demeanor, my lack of interest, my fidgety nature, they had the wisdom to see that it wasn't right now. But those old timers made it really clear to me that if and when I was ready, that the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous would always be open to a drunk like me. And I think looking back at that experience now, next to my parents, AA is probably the closest thing to unconditional love that an alcoholic like myself will ever experience. No matter how many lives I destroyed, how many people I burned, how many jobs I lost, how many cars I wrecked, how many hearts I broke. How many despicable, shameful things I did. And if you are, in fact, an alcoholic, it's the most shameful thing in the world to be the family drunk. So I think you come from a large family and everyone talks, and it's like one more rubber room, one more jail cell, one more 5150, like happy birthday, dad, I'm in jail. You know, the high price we pay for the low quality of life that we have as alcoholics. I mean, it's the holidays. Does anybody relate to being paid not to come home on the holidays? I mean, that was my life, especially you know Thanksgiving. Anytime there was food, I was so loaded. It was like, please come back after New Year's. That's that's what it was like for me, and um, absolutely horrible. I, I look at parents now, and I see all the love and the hope that they have for their kids. You see the procession of cars outside these elementary schools. And I was an only child. I was a straight A student. I know I was the hope of my parents. And to literally watch my mom and dad watch me burn my life to the ground to the point where eventually my mom moved. She sold the family property and moved and didn't leave a forwarding address when I was in one more institution. And despite all of that shame and humiliation, The doors of Alcoholics Anonymous has always been open to people like me. If I lived to be 100 years old, I could never, ever pay AA back for the love and kindness that, you know what, some of you people have shown me. Not all. I mean, I don't mean to be offensive, but if, if you like everybody in AA, you know what it means? It means you're probably not going to enough meetings. I mean, I've learned to love people around here I don't even like. My sponsor said, you cannot afford to have resentments in Alcoholics Anonymous because your life depends on it. And, you know, for me, eventually, I know, I know we never see this anymore, but eventually I started coming to meetings drunk. Now, the interesting thing about AA 2020, if you actually see a drunk person in an AA meeting, people say stuff like, oh my gosh, what's he doing here? You don't see a lot of wet alcoholics and alcoholics anonymous, and I don't want to you know, bash the therapeutic community. But for me, you know, treatment would kind of swoop me up in my most desperate moments, you know, throw me into yoga class, right? Craft hour. I'm making like belt buckles and bongs. Nature walks. I mean, I'm walking out of a $5 a hit crack house. And two days later, I'm complaining because the infinity pool isn't warm enough. and The, the Coke machine doesn't work. So, you know, I've just What I'm doing is I'm going to 7-Eleven. I'll get myself a big gulp cup, a really big cup. I'll fill it up with liquor, put a little Coca-Cola on top. And I'm, I'm walking into the late night Hollywood candlelight meeting, doing some of my best sharing. And then I start going through treatment centers. And as you know, the West side, this is what we call the rehab Riviera. So I'm going through treatment center after treatment center, kind of like our first speaker. And I, I remember telling my sponsor, I'd gone through treatment 28 times. And he starts laughing hysterically. And he looks at me and he says, you know, that doesn't make you an alcoholic because that had become my identity. He says, that doesn't make you an alcoholic. And I thought, you're kidding. He says, no, that just means you paid half a million dollars for a big book. And I didn't think that was funny. And I'm not going to start quoting and citing pages out of the book tonight, but page 101 of the big book says any scheme that attempts to shield the alcoholic from temptation is doomed to failure. See, treatment was a great place to fatten me up for another run. Treatment has its rightful place in recovery. Even Bill Wilson had gone through treatment. I really believe that treatment may have saved my life because it slowed me down enough to hear the message. Some people don't go through treatment. If you've noticed, you know what all the treatment centers and religions have in common? They all send their drunks to us, right? But if you're like me, my experience is, is that treatment never really solved the problem. And as an alcoholic, like so many of us, I always thought the problem was liquor. I thought it was alcohol. And I remember someone in AA saying to me, Adam, if alcohol's your problem, that drink, that shot glass, that 12-pack, that little glass of Chardonnay, if that's your problem, you're probably not an alcoholic. And then in the very next breath, he says to me, and if you are, in fact, an alcoholic, the type that's described in the doctor's opinion in the big book of alcoholics anonymous your problem isn't alcohol and it took me another decade it took me 10 more years to really understand what that man was trying to tell me it was almost like some kind of cruel riddle i drank over that for years but what happened to me fortunate for me is i got around a group of big book enthusiasts people in AA that took the statements in the big book of alcoholics anonymous turned them into questions and directed those statements at me was i incapable of being honest with myself did i in fact drink because i liked the effect produced by alcohol was i restless irritable and discontent by nature was that my natural state was my greatest obsession that somehow someday i would control and enjoy my drinking at the same time and the question there was did i pursue that illusion to the gates of insanity and death and When I started to go through those considerations, I had to concede for the first time I saw the truth. And the most obvious truth for a lot of us, it was obvious I couldn't live with alcohol. Even in eighth grade, I was already overshooting the mark. I was already peeing in my pants, drooling on my desk, passed out under the bleachers. My nickname in middle school was space cadet. I couldn't find homeroom. People were picking high schools. I was already picking rehabs. But if you're new here tonight, alcoholism comes in people. It doesn't come in bottles or six packs or 12 packs or kegs or shot glasses. Alcoholism comes in people. And the greater aspect of this spiritual illness, as Bill Wilson describes it, centering in my mind, if going through the considerations in that book show me anything at all, it shows me that an alcoholic of my type, an alcoholic of this type, cannot live without alcohol not successfully, not happily. And part of what it really means for me to be an alcoholic, if I'm honest about my relationship with liquor, is it seems that I have a mind that will continue to take me back to that first drink. Every time I get released from an emergency room, a hospital, a fancy Malibu treatment center, Men's Central Jail, 5743, roll it up. It's like as soon as I hear my release number and I'm sitting in that cell, I have this visceral compulsion to drink. In fact, I don't even stop for my property. I am immediately in that release module with so much anticipation that there is nothing between me and that drink. And if you know that feeling like I do, that all of my life I was one decision away from a drink. And if you're new tonight between me and that decision, there's a whole world called recovery. It's about people like you. It's about the rooms of AA. It's about this new platform we call Zoom. It's about a psychic change for many of us and not all of us. It seems to be about a deep and effective spiritual experience. That which is brought about by taking very specific actions in the big book of AA, that psychic change. But all of my life, I was one decision away from a drink. And today, between me and that decision, there is this distance. And people will say it, oh, we're all the same distance from a drink. I don't believe that. You think the guy over here that, you know, has got four or five commitments, he's working steps, he's got a sponsor, he's doing 10, 11, and 12, he's being of service in his community. You think he's the same distance from a drink as the guy on the other side of the room that's doing nothing? a very good question because the book really says nothing ensures immunity more than intensive work with others. It's telling me that I have a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of my spiritual condition. So my experience is I better find out what it means to maintain my spiritual condition if it's truly a matter of life and death. So what it really means if you're new for someone like me to be an alcoholic is I have this mind that will continue to take me back to alcohol. It's almost like my default program, like on a computer. And I've had the privilege of sponsoring a lot of really smart guys, guys that write code, that build apps for phones. And you know, we talk about the language that Bill Wilson uses in 1939 in the literature and how really advanced that was for that time period. Because we use the word program today all the time. It's common vernacular. One of the definitions of a program, if you look it up in the dictionary, is very simple. It is a sequential set of instructions designed to bring about a result. Now listen to the language. What do you do when you get a corrupt file on a computer? Well, it's obvious. You install a recovery disk. Listen to the parallel language. And the function of that disk is to restore that program, second step, to an earlier point in the process. It never occurred to me that steps 10 and 11 are very much like a viral scan. That if I can apply these ideas to be mindful, to be watchful, to be rid of the things that are blocking me from self, from God, and from others, to systematically look at my selfishness and be rid of it, that I develop a kind of spiritual alignment. This channel that St. Francis talks about, it's almost like 10 clears the channel, 11 fills it, 12 empties it. And I start to live in this operating system in 10, 11, and 12, which brings about such a change in my perception that I look back at my old life and I think, how did I ever live like that? That is a profound alteration in my perception of life. It never occurred to me when Bill Wilson says principles before personalities. It was our founder's future hope that these spiritual instructions, these guidelines would have more impact. Then the untethered opinions in the fellowship, and I love the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, is a critical and necessary part of recovery. But I, I had a family. My mom would have parties with 200 people. I was surrounded by fellowship as a young guy. And being an only child, I had I was like the boy wonder of the family. I had it all around me. Just like in the fraternities, the fellowship is but one element, like it says in that second chapter in the powerful cement that binds us. It is a necessary piece, but for me, it was insufficient. And I'd come through the rooms for years in some of the biggest meetings in the world, and I couldn't stay sober. The fellowship brings me enthusiasm. It brings me inspiration. It gives me encouragement. It gives me hope, brotherly love, compassion. Some people actually find employment and relationships in the fellowship. But if you unleash someone like me into a large group of people without guiding principles, my character defects thrive. I actually get sicker in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And what that means is somehow I become more separate, more different, and more alone. And if you haven't heard that terminology, what that means is separated from God. It means different than every single person here. That's what we call terminal uniqueness, if you haven't heard that term. And alone, you know that loneliness, that ache in the heart of every one of us that really has nothing to do with the proximity or closeness of other people. In the middle of my own wedding, my own birthday party, that the bigger the crowd, the more lonely I feel. That loneliness at the core of my spirit that I can't talk about. And what that really is for someone like me is my inability to connect with others. And you put a couple of drinks in me, I'm calling people from fifth grade saying, I love you. I go right into men's. Get me loaded. Put a couple of drinks in me. I'm standing on the roof of my building howling at the moon. I'm immediately connected to the universe. Put a couple more drinks in me. I'm at peace with self. Get me good and drunk. I lose interest in selfish things and suddenly gain interest in my fellows. And my experience continues to show me that unless I can develop that sense of comfort and ease that I always sought from alcohol through this spiritual process, a drunk like me will never stay here. And it's been said by many people, my friend Clancy used to say it, the view from the center, the perspective from the center of AA, this spiritual life is entirely different than it is from the outside. You can fall off the edge, you can't fall off the middle. And I had always been on the outside looking in. And my experience shows me that parallel to that life of being separate, different, and alone, there is these three fundamental pillars of recovery. And what that is for me is to feel protected by God, accepted by self, and connected to a community. That first feel, that peace, to be protected by God, we say it in every meeting. We ask for his care and protection with complete abandon. And I was told, if you abandon the ship, you can't get back on it. You go to the ocean with a little cup, you get a cup full of water. I go to the ocean with my whole life. My relationship with this power looks very different. When I say, God, take all of me, take my relationship, take my career, take my resentment, take my fear, take my selfishness. That first piece, Clancy used to say, safe, sane, and sober. That first piece, a sense of safety to be protected by God. The second, to be accepted by self. What that really means is, I no longer need internal or external validation. Over a period of time in steps four through seven, we develop what's called an internal locus of control. And the third piece, to be connected to a community. Protected by God, accepted myself, connected to a community. And somehow I go from being the weakest link in my family, and I'm talking about generations of suicide, mental illness, and alcoholism, to 22 years later, the strongest link in that family. That's why I know if you're new, when we talk about the disease of alcoholism and it's predicated by the word spiritual, the disease of alcoholism is the only disease when treated that will actually leave the sufferer in a better position than if they never had the disease. And I'd never believed that. I would have challenged that. I thought this was the Irish curse. And I saw people all around me dying of it. And my experience now is that by applying these fundamental ideas in my life, Suddenly I'm put in a position where I have this neutrality, where I'm able to navigate around the drama, where I'm able to match calamity with serenity, where for the first time I'm able to stay in a kind of fit spiritual condition. You know, Bill Wilson talked about emotional sobriety, what that means to have spiritual balance. I never thought that was possible. I would hear people say I'm a grateful alcoholic. I wanted to throw up. I had no idea. That gratitude really isn't, like Wilson said, a passing emotion. What gratitude is for me is a function. And what it is is humility plus service equals gratitude. And that gratitude for a lot of us is a consciousness. It's a state of being. It is something that I can develop like 10, 11, and 12. I can develop a state of gratitude. And we say a grateful alcoholic will not drink. I believe that. And when I look back at 17 years of failure, and I'm talking about 17 years of living in group homes, chow time, group time, lights out. I mean, shoot me. I got so fed up with institutional living that eventually if the disease didn't kill me, that part of it would have. It and what happened is I became willing. I became willing to take actions I didn't believe. And I remember my sponsor standing in front of me and he said to me, he goes, how free do you want to be, bro? You want to be free enough to survive this? When people ask you how you're doing, you can say, I'm hanging in there. Or do you want to be free enough to chase your dreams, to really find joy? And I think that's the bigger piece here. I always thought AA was about putting out fires. And what I've discovered over a long period of time is Alcoholics Anonymous is about learning how not to start them. And when I look back at my failure, even in the midst of all of these meetings, I mean, we have meetings with 1,200 people here, BC, before COVID. And what I see is my defiance towards spiritual principles. And what that defiance looks like is that I will argue with anybody about anything at any time. You tell me it's black, I'll tell you it's white. You tell me it's big, I'll tell you it's small. You tell me to go left, I'll go right with an attitude. That's why we say denial's an acronym. It stands for don't even notice, I am lying. Think about it, you could tell an alcoholic, you can't tell him much, Oh, you don't believe it? Try sponsoring somebody. And what that really means is you can lead me into the gates of hell, but you can't push me into heaven. And if you're new, when Wilson talks about attraction rather than promotion in the Eleven tradition, what that really means to someone like me is that eventually I'm going to come back to AA on my own terms. Not because Sober Living wants me to, not because the parole office wants me to, not because DCSF thinks it's a good idea. I mean, we're on the West side. Everyone gets sober here for the trust fund, right? But see, hope doesn't matter to a drunk like me until I'm hopeless. You think hope matters to me when I got a half a million dollars left in the bank, nice sports car out in the driveway, little boat down in the marina? Please, you wouldn't catch me dead in an AA meeting. And my experience shows me that that God didn't matter to a drunk like me until my back was against the wall. I got shot in a little argument through the center of my back, came out right, right past an artery in my heart. I get this angiogram. and As soon as I found out that it had missed my heart, I can remember I'm laying on this gurney. I'm still conscious. I, and like, like um, Dean was talking about, I got the paramedics over me with the paddles, right? And I'll tell you, all I know is God. If you've ever been confronted with your mortality at that level... There's only two things we try for, mommy and God. And if you got your head in the toilet every morning, steering the porcelain bus, like me, puking my gut every morning with the dry heaves, right? I mean, who prays more than drunks like us? If you don't relate, check out Al-Anon. I mean, I was thinking about that when Dean was sharing. It's like I totally related to the first speaker because for me, this is life or death. The disease killed me every day and it wouldn't bury me. Do you know how easy it is for someone like me to develop a state of gratitude? I mean, I don't want to be offensive, but, you know, I just went up to Malibu to talk at this meeting recently and I drive all the way up to the top of the hills and I walk into this beautiful house and some kid screams from the back of the room, oh no, not sushi again. And I mean, I just, I just couldn't understand how I could ever establish gratitude. In that kid's heart, there's a saying, God cannot use a man or woman till they come to the end of themselves. And until I got to that place where I was truly teachable, and if you're new, it's got nothing to do with the outside. It has to do with the inside. Spiritual bankruptcy is, is completely exclusive to outside circumstances, and I never really understood that. There's a guy named Dr. Harry Tebow, and he was a friend of Alcoholics Anonymous and Bill Wilson, board-certified psychiatrist. And he says the four qualities of an alcoholic are grandiose, sensitive, immature, and omnipotent. And those are our finer qualities. I tell people, stick that in your next Tinder ad. I have a coin. It says the greatest battle in a man or woman's life is not against his brother or sister. It is against himself. And what happened to me, I always say, thank God, we don't look like our stories. I, I got to one more treatment center. I was 120 pounds. Uh, I was dying of alcoholism. I looked like a concentration camp victim. I was missing a couple teeth and I, you know, I'm sitting there in my nightgown in the, in the treatment center with my ass hanging out, judging the speaker. It's amazing how we're the only people that can actually be on the curb and still look down at the world, right? I got two speeds, grandiose, and comatose. And I'm strutting around this detox, bragging about Robin Brinks trucks. I finally did my four step. It was a bread truck and it was empty. So I'm sitting there in this detox. And a woman comes in on what we call an H&I panel. I know there's people here from the East Coast and different parts of the country. In, in, in On the other side of the country, they call it treatment and corrections. But H&I stands for hospitals and institutions. It's a committee that brings meetings into prisons, detoxes, treatment centers, hospitals, anywhere where clients, patients, or inmates can't get to meetings. Our H&I on the West side, in normal times, is about 250 people. They meet once a month and they're fighting each other to get on panels, to talk to people in treatment centers that don't care. But I think h probably has one of the lowest relapse rates in all of recovery. So this woman's on this h panel. She's doing her AA talk. We're sitting in the detox. And at the end of her talk, she looks us all up and down and she says, if I could give you all the gift of recovery, I wouldn't do it. And I looked at her and I looked at the guy next to her and I remember saying, what a bitch. And I didn't mean to be offensive, but but what she said after that was something very powerful to me. What she said was the reason I wouldn't give you the gift of recovery if you're new is because I wouldn't rob you of the journey. And that journey to recovery, just like that journey to surrender that every alcoholic has to walk is personal. I mean, Dr. Harry Tebow talked about compliance versus surrender. I think that the hope was to develop a concept of surrender in people's life. But see, no one could give me that. And I was told that if you're in a hot tub with a supermodel, a fifth of whiskey and an eight ball and your dad sends you to rehab, we don't expect you to be happy. I mean, it's ridiculous to be in the fun with problem stage and have some kind of intervention in the middle of a party. Do you know how awful that is? I mean, we say, oh, my worst day sober is better than my best day drinking. I'm like, are you kidding me? I drank with enthusiasm. If you didn't drink with enthusiasm, I don't really relate to you. And my experience is that my worst day sober is better than my last day drinking. That's the true perspective on that talk. My last couple of years where the disease, like I said before, killed me every day and it wouldn't bury me. And if you're new, my experience also shows me that I could write all day long on step one until I'd beaten down that liquor store door at 5.59 a.m. over and over and over again or paid the clerk at 7-Eleven $100 for a six-pack after closing or driven all the way to Tijuana to get to the bar or done all those despicable, diabolical, disgusting things that many of us had to do on that journey to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. You think writing about step one was gonna somehow enhance my experience? I had to have a relationship with alcohol. I eventually had to see that self-reliance failed me. I eventually had to get to a place where self-will was insufficient. It says it right in the book, page 23. It says, every alcoholic passes through a region where even the strongest desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. It's huge to drink against my will. So that gift of desperation for someone like me, it's a great acronym for God, the lofty idea, but it's really simplistic for me. And what it is, is eventually I got to a place in my life where my head couldn't get enough and my body couldn't take anymore. Skid rows full of people like that. When my head can't get enough and my body can't take anymore, I'm knocking on death's door. Then God means totally something different to someone like me. What it really means is grow or die. Then suddenly my hand is forced and I'm faced with those two choices that the book talks about. The first one is so obvious, go on to the bitter end, right? Blotting out the consciousness of my intolerable situation and the other to accept spiritual help. In fact, the book says faced with alcoholic destruction or to live on a spiritual basis. It says, these are not easy alternatives. If you're new, do a survey at Costco. You got jails, institutions and death, happy, joyous and free. It's a no brainer. You step over to my cell in men's central jail with a question like that. And I'm scratching my head thinking, How bad an alcoholic death? I'm looking at five years in prison or 90 days in treatment, and I'm thinking I can drink in prison. I mean, that is absolutely absurd. And my experience, if you're new, is I will justify, minimize, and rationalize my right to drink. It's almost like that first half of step one is me defending my right to drink. And the rest of the steps, the entire program after that is me defending my right to play God. There's a saying, like I said before, God cannot use a man till he comes to the end of himself. Eventually, I'm confronted again with that same choice. And what's my choice to be? And my experience, if you're new, because I saw there's some people here that are doing the institutional living, which is great because it might be a chance to learn about alcoholism is the bottom was the same for everyone I've ever worked with. And you know what it is? It's when I ask for help and I'm actually willing to receive it from Yale to jail, Park Avenue, Park Bench, those circumstances, again, are absolutely irrelevant to someone like me. It was when I asked for help, and I was actually willing to receive it. Do you know how many people come to AA, like snowbirds in the winter to get off the street, and they ask for help? It's almost like this. Let's simplify it. I throw you a life raft, and you look at the life raft, and you say, you know, I was looking for a blue one. I really don't like the way you threw it. And my experience is I did that over and over and over again. And my experience again is that there's a direct relationship between willingness and surrender. You ever notice you'll never see anybody more willing to work the AA program than the guy that comes crawling through the back door of an AA clubhouse after a long, hard run. He'll do anything, 90 meetings in 90 days, first day out of treatment. He's got three sponsors wants to take the whole coffee pot home with him, doesn't even have a a trunk to put it in, right? That's how we lose half our literature. And 30, 60, 90 days later, I'm looking at that guy saying, you mean we got to go to meetings every day? And like a prize fighter, I throw in the towel, and then I take that towel back one little piece at a time. I take my will back. And all the things that AA gives me, the big job, the nice car, the house, the relationship, somehow those things become more important than the fundamental spiritual ideas that got me there. So instead of building AA around my big life, because what happens when I do that is Alcoholics Anonymous becomes very inconvenient, is I had to build my life around AA. And it's a very fundamental difference. It sounds very subtle, but for someone like me, it is imperative that I understand how powerful that was. I, I I was told when I was new to buy a black suit and I don't want to bring the group down, but I remember saying to my sponsor, why? Why would I buy a black suit? And he said to me, you know, unfortunately, if you stick around AA, you're going to go to a lot of funerals. It'll come in handy. And then he started to laugh and he says, oh, and by the way, if you get loaded again, at least we'll have something nice to bury you in. And as dark as that is, I needed to hear the truth about alcoholism, that alcoholism is fatal. It is progressive, it is chronic. We talk about jails, institutions, and death. That's like hamburgers, fries, and a Coke. They go together. But if you're like me, as a newcomer, I lived in a world of delusion. Not only can I not differentiate the true from the false in my relationship with alcohol, but I can't do it in my personal relationships. And what happened to me, I mean, after going through treatment 28 times, I I started to speak a foreign language and I don't want to be offensive, but you guys know what it is, right? It's called victimese. I don't understand how the drink bone connects to the jail bone, right? I need a class for that. What do they call it? Relapse prevention? It's kind of like I met her in rehab. I can't believe she drank, please. I knew he was a crackhead. Can't believe he stole my iPhone. Sound familiar? And what happens as I go through this process is there's a part of the big book where it talks about people like me make decisions based on self that later leave me in a position to be hurt. And until I was really able to connect those dots, I couldn't get free. Until I connected those dots, I continued to play victim. We have a saying in AA, surrender or be dragged. The problem is victims don't stay sober. And if they do, their sobriety is precarious. And eventually, through this process, I was able to look at a lot of these ideas from a completely different angle. And if you're like me, fear's not going to keep me here. Getting a third strike, living on the street, being homeless, losing my big career. I don't know if scared straight worked for you. That went right over my head. Now, the book talks about the problem drinker, right? The hard drinker. Big difference between a problem drinker and a real alcoholic. Think about it. You get a problem drinker and a real alcoholic in a jail cell, you know, the rubber room for drunk driving. you got two completely different philosophies going on. you got the problem drinker on one side of the cell thinking, why did I drink so much last night? I knew I shouldn't have drank so much. Why didn't I take Uber? Real alcoholics on the other side of the cell thinking, why did I take the five? I know the court card people never laugh at that humor. That's not funny, right? Should have stayed on surface streets. You could have been cleaning your pipe tonight. Problem drinker's wife says, if you don't stop drinking, I'm leaving you. Problem drinker cleans up his act, doesn't drink in the house, gets a little visine. Now, if my woman says, if you don't stop drinking, I'm leaving you, you know what I'm thinking, right? I'm thinking about single life. And that's my experience. If anything got in the way of alcohol, it was out of my life. I mean, alcohol was the love of my life. It had me from hello. It completed me. You think I'm going to let go of the love of my life without a fight? I can't even let go of a bad relationship. Everything I let go of has claw marks all over it. And if you're new, my relationship with AA is identical. If anything gets in the way of Alcoholics Anonymous for me, it's out of my life. A relationship, I don't care how beautiful she is, how in love we are, my soulmate. I remember the first time I said that in a meeting, there she was in the back of the room. And she looks at me and she says, God, Adam, you don't look like an alcoholic. Why do you got to go to all those meetings? Oh, please, you're not speaking again, are you? Then she tells me, you know, that program's getting in the way of our relationship. So, so now it's around this time of year. It's Thanksgiving and it's the big night. You know the big night, right? Meet the parents night. So, so I get over to her mom and dad's house. Out comes the exotic wine. We're sitting at the head of the table. I got a suit and tie on. and She says, honey, you can have one glass of wine. It's just a glass of wine. It's a toast. It's natural wine Four more rehabs. I stole her purse that night, went down to the hood and got an outside issue. And she came to detox with a get well card. Poor girl, like I tried. She belonged to another program. I, I tried to send her to Codependence Anonymous. She wouldn't go. You know why? She didn't have anyone to go with. I can always tell the Al-Anons, they don't think any of this is funny. I can't stand to see if I have a good time even here. But what happened to me, it's very important, is what what happened to me is when I came out of treatment and I started working the steps, my sponsor also took me through the traditions. And by doing the simple idea of applying the traditions to my relationships, when I came back into my mom's life five years later, I had a job, I had a home, I had a car, I had a relationship, and I came back into her life to give to her. And the same thing with my dad, I was able to take the traditions off the wall and apply them to our family. Our common welfare comes first, our family depends on our unity. For our family's purpose, there's a loving God. That do we actually have a desire to be together? And what I discovered like the autonomy in the four tradition, that intimacy is not two people looking at each other, it's two people playing different instruments in the same music. So what happened is when I came back into my parents' life I came back with a completely different set of ideas and I was able to build those relationships and it didn't just heal me. It healed my whole family. And, you know, a lot of people know my dad that, that in recovery, and it's like, I hated my dad. The guy was never there for me as a little boy. And what happened was I was asked to go through this process and really look at his life And that was a really powerful thing because what happened is when I looked at my dad's life, he was like five years old. My grandma was hiding him under tables while Hitler was bombing London. At nine years old, she died of cancer. He went into a camp. At nine, he's an orphan. And then he ends up joining the military at 14 years old. And I'm expecting this guy to treat me like Mr. Brady. If you don't know who that is, go to Hulu. But the fact is, is as I went through that process, I started to develop this idea of forgiveness. And one day my dad looks at me and he says, I'm so sorry, son, I wasn't there for you when you were a little boy. And the healing was immediate. It was immediate with me. All of a sudden, I saw the truth about all of those dysfunctional relationships all the way through my family history. And what I was asked to do as an exercise was everywhere that I had a resentment, I was asked to take that resentment and flip it over and ask if I was capable of the same behavior. And it's a piece in the book where it says, we realize the people who offended us we were also perhaps spiritually sick, right? Page 66. It says, although we did not like their symptoms and the way they disturbed us, like ourselves were sick too. The challenge for my sponsor was to prove like ourselves were sick too, to ask myself if I was capable of the same behavior in every one of those resentments. So if I resented a friend for gossiping, did I ever gossip? If I resented an employer for exploiting me, did I ever exploit an employer? if I resented a parent for abandoning me, did I ever abandon anyone I love for my true love alcohol? And as I started to go through that piece, I started to see the truth. And what I was asked to do is to look at the lie behind every one of those resentments. And the dishonesty with me is my father's love for me should have been more powerful than his disease. And once I saw that, I realized that forgiveness was releasing someone from the prison of my own mind. It also showed me that I had been the prisoner. And that was so powerful. But behind that forgiveness, there has to be compassion. And behind compassion, there has to be empathy. And what I never realized is this thing is set up, if I go through this process, to get to a place of freedom. It's like alcoholism is the only prison where the key's inside. And I never saw that. So in closing, if someone did to me what I did to myself, I would have killed them. If someone did to me what I did to others, I would have killed them. And then they come to AA and you want me to pray to God. I didn't want God to find out where I was. I was bankrupt in those very simple relationships. If you're new, when I look back at the 12 steps now, they remedy those three relationships. Steps one through three, recreate and develop a relationship with God. Four through seven, recreate and develop a relationship with self. Eight and nine, recreate and develop a relationship with others. Very simple idea. Ten maintains, develops, and grows my relationship with self. 11 maintains, develops, and grows my relationship with God. 12 through service maintains, develops, and grows my relationship with others. So coming out of the steps, a selfish, self-centered alcoholic like myself is not only easily able to control my desire for alcohol, which is right in the doctor's opinion, but for the first time in my life, I'm able to live in harmony with God, with self, and with others. There was a great spiritual teacher. He was asked, what's the most important thing of all your teachings? He said, love God with all thy heart, love thy neighbor, as myself. And if God scares you out of AA and you're a real drunk, don't worry about it. Booze will scare you back in. So when one through three, I give it up. Four through seven, I clean it up. Eight, and nine, I make it up. 10, 11, and 12, I keep it up. And again, as a result of those actions, suddenly I'm able to navigate around the drama. I'm able to match calamity with serenity. I'm able to stay in fit spiritual condition. You know, we agnostics, that, that chapter is so powerful. It's not we believers. And it challenged me. If I believed in, because I had calculus in high school, I understand inertia, velocity, centrifugal force. I took physics. I can see the immutable physical laws. The question's always the same. Why wouldn't there be spiritual laws? Einstein said, I would rather live my life pretending there's a God and finding out there isn't than live my life pretending there's no God and finding out there is. The evidence is right here. My sponsors said, it doesn't matter who's wrong. It doesn't matter who's right. It just matters who's left. And I look at the results because the therapeutic community wants to tell us in AA, we have no evidence-based results. If you're new, I challenge you, go to a world convention. Check out 80,000 of us when we get this thing that's going on, taken care of. You'll, you'll see 80, 90,000 alcoholics coming from all over the world to celebrate recovery on their own dime. Bought a plane ticket, bought a, you know, bought a hotel, got a -a rent-a-car, booked our conference ticket. And for every one of those 80,000 people, there's a mom, there's a dad, there's a brother, there's a sister, there's a whole world of people that have been positively affected by AA. You know, one of the things that happened to me a little while back, I was at an airport and a guy comes running up to me at this airport and he says, you don't remember me, do you? And he's wearing a slingshot T-shirt covered in tattoos. I'm at the airport. He accosts me and he says, you don't remember me. And I I looked at him and I said, I don't remember you. And I thought he was going to hit me up for money. And this is what the guy said to me. He said, 15 years ago, you spoke in a prison panel. And something you said changed my life. And then he points to these two little girls. And he said, these are my beautiful daughters. This is my amazing wife. We wanna thank you. And all of a sudden I'm crying in the airport with these five people. And I remember calling my sponsor and telling him, and my sponsor says, Adam, you have a big mouth and a good memory. Don't let it go to your head. And he hung up on me. But I understood at that point, the purpose of AA, to win the confidence of a newcomer where no one else could. So one of the things that happened to me when I got out of that 28th treatment center is the guy that was running the detox said to me, Why don't you come back into our lovely hospital next week and tell all the patients here, if you can make it, how you stayed sober a whole week. And he dismissed me like he didn't care. And I got this this big resentment. So for eight years, I've got this resentment. So I'm coming back to this treatment center every week to tell a bunch of strangers in a detox how I survived another week without drinking. And what happened is I was tricked into service. And what I never realized is the reason I couldn't get sober for all those years is because I wasn't willing to give anything. And later, when I really understood Bill's story, when Bill Wilson got out of that third treatment center, he was depressed, he'd lost everything worthwhile in life, and he gets a little idea. The idea is maybe if I go back into the treatment center and talk to some of the patients, I'll feel better. That's all it was. And we all know the story. He calls Dr. Silkworth and Silkworth's like, you want to do what, Bill? Why would he let a patient with no credentials come back into his hospital? Silkworth was a double board certified physician. He He was certified as a psychiatrist and a neurologist. Even today's standards, he was a brilliant man. And Dr. Silkworth allowed Bill Wilson with no credibility whatsoever to come into that hospital and talk to patients. And if you're new, what Dr. Silkworth saw from 1935 to 1939, he said was absolutely amazing. He was, he was amazed with what he saw. In fact, he was so amazed. If you look at the first endorsement in the doctor's opinion, where it says you can absolutely rely on anything these men say about themselves, was an endorsement given to Bill Wilson that he could come into any hospital in the United States with a letter of credibility from a double board certified physician and talk to alcoholics. And what did Bill really know? All Bill really had was the fundamental ideas from the Oxford group. Surrender, catharsis, restitution, and service. I would imagine every single person on this Zoom platform tonight probably has more effective ideas than Bill had at that time. And I had to ask myself, what was holding me back? And I started going in and talking to new people. There's a poem in Notre Dame that says, "I sought my God, my God I could not see, I sought my soul, my soul I could not free. I sought my brother and I found all three And that that basic fundamental idea when when Bill met Dr. Bob, that simple idea is something we've been duplicating since 1939 or actually longer than that. So if you're new, the definition of Hell is if God were to show us all the things we might have accomplished, if we'd only believed in ourselves. And if you're new, I couldn't believe in myself. But I believed in the power of AI, I believed in people like you, especially around the holidays. I never made it through a holiday season without being drunk. And what I discovered is the reason I couldn't be around my family, the reason my family pushed my buttons is because they installed them. And what happened through, especially four through nine, is it showed me how to acknowledge, admit, and be rid of those buttons. And it showed me how to truly connect with very difficult people, very difficult people. Because if you're new, just like in Al-Anon, if people have to change for me to be happy, I will never be happy. The change has to come from us. And if you're new, we can help you with that. Please ask for help. The dirtiest four letter word in AA is help. Please ask us. There might be someone here that's not gonna make it to New Year's. They'll never see 2021. And that's the person, hopefully, we can just give a little bit of hope. We do actually care. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I'll tell you something. I care. We care if you're new. We actually care. There's nothing more we want to see than you to have an amazing life. That's what AA did for me. Thank you very much.